This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. I thought I'd try a different uh, you know, <laughs> cadence to my voice. My name is Robert Bohr. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing this week? Hey, Robert. I'm doing really good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's definitely busy. We just talked about this a little bit. There's a lot of things coming kind of to the end, right? Kind of deadlines and things like that, uh, that are really cool projects, but definitely kind of all right at at the same time saying, okay, I need to knock all this stuff out. So uh, we can make it through, you know, next couple of weeks we'll be in a, a good relaxed spot. Yes, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I, it's definitely the end of the semester here and lots of deadlines and, you know, yeah, just trying to get all the things wrapped up and with a nice pretty bow on it and shipped off to whoever the next person is that has to pick up <laughs> what I'm working on. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in a few weeks, as you mentioned, you know, once this kind of little month or season wraps up, I will be able to be out there in Atlanta and get to see you and Brooke and Gray and my family. So excited. Yeah. Yeah. So be fun. maybe we'll do another, uh, you know, live stream video thing. Oh my the, gosh. Yes. The Facebook group. Yeah. I would love that. And we can have Gray and Callie and Oliver take over it too. That would be oh, fun. Oh gosh. Yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, hey, speaking of, it yes. is now May. So it is it a couple is. of things, right? Uh, mm-hmm. we'll, it, there's some children's mental health stuff and we'll talk about that, which is kind of the timing of the episode, but also it is Mental Health Awareness Month kind of that's as a whole. Right. Yes, that's right. That's right. I love I love watching, you know, how many folks are elevating conversation on mental health and mental health awareness um, and just seeing, you know, kind of my social media feeds kind of fill up with a reminder of how important it is that you know, that we take care of our mental health and, you know, to express gratitude for those who are um, serving and treating those around them, um, you know, with mental health concerns. And it's just, you know, it's so good to see this, this sense of awareness be elevated um, this month on mental health. Yeah. 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 Well, obviously we are, you know, big advocates and fans of mental health in general and and having more conversations and things like that. I will say the, I don't know if you've seen this. I think maybe Uh-oh. you have, but I'm not sure. Uh-huh. The traditional, it's not traditional. I don't know why I said that. Uh, the CXMH award for absolute worst mental health awareness month anything goes Uh-oh. to Burger King. Oh, oh my gosh. I saw that. No, I did see that with their new, the new meals. Oh, it's buck wild, oh, Holly. Oh gosh. What? It I was like, wait a terrible. minute. It- I was like, it's not April Fool's Day. This is supposed to, this has to be a joke, right? But nope. It is. The number of ways in which this is a bad idea. I know. Is outstanding. I know. Uh, Just for, you know, in case anybody who hasn't seen it, I want to read you just the first clip and then we'll we'll put a, you know, we'll put a, a link in the show notes. They released like a promo video today, which is 
Oh no. Are you serious? As well. I didn't but, see that. Oh man. Yeah, I just saw it before we hopped on. But so this mm. is the, the, the article here on uh, Burger King takes on McDonald's with a range of unhappy meals. Oh, it says geez. no one is happy all the time. That's the message Burger King is trying to communicate with a lineup of burger meals focused on quote unquote real moods to help raise awareness about mental health, which I would argue, no, they're not. Mm. Timed to Mental Health Awareness Month in May, the real meals include, and this is where there's like a whole different level of bad ideas, uh, include the blue meal, the salty meal, Mm -hmm. the yas meal, Mm -hmm. and the DGAF meal, right? So the DGAF meal. Yep. A bunch of people sat in a lot of meetings and somehow came to the conclusion (sighs) that I would like to order one salty meal. I know. One, oh, there's this one, this doesn't uh, list it, but there's also the pissed meal. Yeah, yeah. Somebody decided that these were good ideas. I know. And I, you know, I wish I could say how, like, we do need to normalize the whole spectrum of emotion and mental health and that that is important. But I don't know tying it to fast food in this way was the wisest idea. But, you know. Yeah. And That's, making it like a direct rebuttal to Happy Meals, yeah. which clearly is not trying to actually communicate everyone's always happy. That's right. Uh, and using like the most, how can we be hip language to name these things? I know. Uh, it's it's a mess. I know. It's a little, it's, it's disappointing. But, you know, I, you know... <sighs> I don't know. I'm just. I'm just gonna end with that. It's disappointing. So yeah, but that's, and that's you know, take. just to if someone says you're taking this too seriously, I'm really not. I think it's funny. I just think it's terrible for a number of reasons. One, yeah. the marketing names is bad. Two, uh, pretending like it has anything to do with trying to advocate mental health awareness. That's right. That's right. No, you're not. I mean, like, there's right. just a lot of things that make it kind of cringeworthy on like seven levels. Right. Like perhaps maybe some of that funding could have gone towards mental health communities or service providers or, you know, rather than maybe the marketing. Um, There are a lot of other ways I think that it could have better supported the mental health community. But, but again, that's, that's our take. And, you know, it's not the be all end all. Each person is entitled to their opinion. And, um, you know, I, you know, it, there's just those moments where you're like, gosh, those resources could have been used in a lot of other ways. But well, yeah. this episode is brought to you by Burger King. So <laughs> go on down and get your oh, no. <laughs> salty meal and oh. mention the promo code CXMH. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, this week's episode is our second, the second part of the conversation that we had with Dr. Steven Gersovich, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is where we really get into a lot of his work as a children and adolescent psychologist, um, Uh psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Uh Yeah. Because there's like a, a, within mental health awareness month, there's a couple days and weeks and things that have to do with children's mental health as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so we thought we would time this release with that. Uh, we haven't, I don't think ever actually had an episode focusing on children's mental health and, and mm. what the various things that we can ask there. And, and obviously he's, you know, been in the field for a long, long time. And so he has a lot of great insights yeah. um, that has to do with that. And then as you heard last week, if you haven't listened, go back and, and listen Absolutely. to last week. I really recommend it. But yeah, he has also a passion for uh, making the church a part of how do we, how do we do something about this? What do we do? How do we make our, our churches more inclusive and things like that? So, yeah. um, you know, he has 
kind of just a, a heartbeat that's right alongside the that of the show. Yeah, and we get to ask him a lot of questions about children's mental health, which isn't a, a particularly strong area or a, a focus area of I would say either one of us. Yeah, right. Well, and I, I absolutely, I learned so much um, from him in this episode, and I think it, it builds on beautifully with what we talked about last week around accessibility within the church, particularly around mental health um, issues, but, but then focusing on children specifically and um, specific things that are common to kiddos in terms of mental health concerns or struggles and um, how to support kiddos and their families, how to be thinking about this as it relates to school settings. And, you know, there, it just, I I learned a lot in, in this episode. So um, yeah. 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 Well, Hey, we will transition into it. Uh, Just, you know, again, one more quick plug. Uh, There's no intro to who he is. We just start the conversation because we did all that last week. So if you get really confused, you can go back, check out the first couple minutes of that one to hear about him if you want. But uh, we'll go ahead and transition in. Enjoy this conversation, the second half of our conversation with Dr. Steven Gersovich. So far, we've been talking about your, like all your work with kind of inclusion ministry, but during kind of your day job, so to speak, you're a child and adolescent psychiatrist, right? So since May May is Children's Mental Health Month, that's we're going to record this and put it out right at the beginning of that month. I'd love to talk some about that because I think it's easy for a lot of people to assume that mental health isn't really a concern for kids, right? We think, oh, they're fine. They're young and resilient. Can you talk some about why children's mental health is important and what types of things that you see working with kids? Well, as we had talked about in the first half of this two-parter, mental health disabilities are by far and away the most common disabilities that are seen in children worldwide. And in this country, they represent three quarters of kids with significant disability. So that this becomes an enormous issue when it comes to being able to serve kids in the public schools. One of the things that there has been a great deal of press about is that over the last five years or so, we have had rapidly increasing rates of suicide among our children and teens. Yeah. When, you know, when, when you take a look, you know, when you take a look at the level of functional impairment and how this interferes with normal development. There are few medical or mental health concerns that are greater than what we see with kids with anxiety, depression, ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. So are there are there specific things uh, that are common in children in terms of like mental health concerns or problems? I mean, I know obviously there's a, a pretty wide variety of, you know, what we call disorders, but uh, are there things that, you know, are are common that people should be looking for or anything like that? Well, if you take a look at the most recent data out of the National Institute of Mental Health, in any given year, roughly one in three kids will struggle with anxiety. And probably 10% out of that group have specific anxiety disorders where the impairment could be described as severe. About 7.5% of school-age kids experience social anxiety. 
one out of every nine school-age kids in the United States has gotten at least one prescription at some point in their life for medication for ADHD. Oh, wow. Repeat um, that one more time. Say that one once more, please. One out of every nine children in oh the United States between the ages of five and 17 <sighs> have gotten at least one prescription in their life for medication for ADHD. And according to the most recent research, the odds that a boy will get at least one prescription by the time they turn 18 is one in five. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, the reason I'm asking my son, my, my son, my three-year-old son just walked in as you said that. And so I was kind of diverted for a second, but just thinking, gosh, one out of five boys and one out of nine kids. Well, and that goes back to, you mentioned in, again, in the last part, kind of this blurred line between seeing things as, you know, disorder or bad parenting or behavior problems in this case, right? So, hey, this this kid is always talking and can't seem to focus and whatever, so he must have ADHD, right? The I guess the the follow-up, the kind of common question for stats like that is as someone who's maybe doing some of that prescribing are we like over medicating kids or is there a way to like parse through some of that? I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the standard narrative. A lot of people say, well, we're, we're over medicating all our kids, but then maybe that's, that's hurtful to people who say, well, I really need this. It helps me function. So uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me give you a couple of different ways of thinking about this, that one of the things that makes mental health disabilities different and this is something we talk about when we're doing trainings for church leaders, is that you can have a mental health disability in which you're disabled some, but not all of the time, and in some, but not all environments or activities. So if we, if we start looking at this issue of kids with ADHD, when I finished my fellowship in child psychiatry 28 years ago, the standard statistic was that three to 5% of kids have ADHD. Um, But, you know, when I think about this, and after having raised two daughters, one who's in med school now, the other in college, who's planning to apply to a doctorate program in psychology, one of the things that I'm struck by is how radically different the demands that we place upon kids for academic productivity are now Mm. compared to say like when I was growing up. So that at the time I probably went to what was one of the top five public high schools in the state of Ohio. And what my daughters had to do in the first grade was probably comparable to what was being asked of me in terms of work completion when I was in the seventh grade. Like you'll, you'll drive to work or you, you know, if you're driving when kids are out in the morning, it's not uncommon for me to have 40 pound kids in my office with 10 pound backpacks. Hmm. And so that some of this increase in the diagnosis of ADHD is that in a sense, we're maybe trying to pound some square pegs into round holes Yeah, in that, you know, when you you can have a kid where maybe they tend to struggle a little bit more relative to their peers with time management 
organization, delaying gratification, work completion. This this isn't so much of an issue. And, and interestingly enough, people think of this as being a little kid problem. 70 to 80% of the kids that we're treating in our practice for this are teenagers. Yeah, The mean, median, and modal age of our new referrals is 13. Mm. And that what happens is, is if you're like a really bright kid, you can be distractible and you can be in la-la land 90% of the time. And you can do well enough if you don't have a problem with behavior that you're getting decent grades in school till about fifth or sixth grade. Mm. Where these kids hit the wall is when they get to the point where they start changing classes. They have homework from four or five different teachers as opposed to one or two teachers. You have the ubiquitous science project or the social studies project where you have to have enough self-discipline to plan out your time and to work on something a half an hour a night every night for the next two weeks. You know, for kids who have something like ADHD or struggle with executive functioning, if that's a relative weakness, school starts becoming very difficult and very frustrating for you at that point. Yeah. 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 Especially during a time as they're, you know, that's tricky already as they're kind of coming of age and, you know, navigating hormones and things like that too. And I just imagine layering all of that on top at the same time is is tremendously tricky. Yeah. Well, the, the most common problem we actually, and this is probably going back about 10 years, most common problem we see now with kids in our practice is anxiety. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's, it, it's interesting because I think that there have been two waves of this. And I've hypothesized that there are certain environmental issues that were tied into each. The first big bump we saw in this was in 2008 after the stock market collapsed. And so with the kinds of like families that we're working with and the clientele we have, for a lot of them, the college funds that they had where they were saving up for their education got wiped out. Mm. And college is so expensive. And, you know, in the kinds of families that come through our practice, they're folks who are very cognizant of wanting their kids to be in situations where they have the best opportunities. Some of the anxiety, I think, comes from families and the expectations that they have for their kids in terms of athletic success, academic success, and interestingly enough, interpersonal success. Hmm. Yeah. And I was going to bring the anxiety aspect up as well, because that it has like most of the clients I see who are adolescents are primarily struggling with anxiety. And usually it gets down into uh, those types of things, right? These pressures, these, well, I I have to take six AP classes and run three clubs. Otherwise I won't get into college. Right. I mean, I've, I've told this story on the show before about Mm -hmm. when I was teaching a seventh grader, when I asked what he was doing that weekend, he said, well, me and my parents are going to look at what colleges I want to go to and what it would take to get into them. Right. So Mm -hmm. this, if we think about anxiety is like fear in the future, then if we, you know, starting in third grade say, well, academics is the, the most important thing because you need to get into a good college. And that just, compounds and compounds and compounds over all those years. I mean, that's, it doesn't go away. Cause now, I mean, it's the same. I see it, you know, I'm teaching college students and graduate and doctoral students and it's still there. I mean, it's still, it's still there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, the issue you might be seeing in some of your students is that 
Well, when college costs fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and you have to maintain a certain average in order to keep the scholarships that right. allow you to be able to attend that school. Yeah, you know that that's a significant concern. Or, for example, one of the things that I'm involved with is that I do a lot of interviewing for prospective med students at one of the two mm-hmm. schools where I serve on faculty, mm-hmm. and. I haven't seen the data for this year, but for the group that was being admitted in 2018, our acceptance rate was 1.4% for the folks who applied. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. And it's, and it's similar at other schools around the country. Yeah. So that like, when you start thinking about like certain, certain majors certain fields that folks want to get into. I mean, the pressure literally starts in middle school. I had a seventh Mm -hmm. grader with anxiety was sitting here in my office yesterday afternoon telling me about his SAT scores. Oh my gosh. gosh. Like, like what's the point of that? And and so, so some, to some extent there's this academic pressure, but there's also this social pressure that I think has been to a significant degree driven by social media. I mean, you think about the extent to which kids are already struggling with you know, identity, self-confidence, self-esteem. When I was in high school, we didn't have something like Instagram that kept track of the number of likes that different people in school got for posting pictures of different things they were doing. Yeah. You know, or something like Snapchat, where kids would be confronted with hard data if their popularity didn't measure up to that of some of their classmates. Right. Or if they missed a day on their, you know, their, their streak that they have for their pictures or, I don't know. I know Robert and I, we've talked back and forth a little bit about social media and, (laughs) and it's, you know, just different perspectives on, on it. But I think, I think it's good that you're bringing it up too and, and how it plays into all this. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a little bit's helpful. And interestingly enough, for some kids with different mental health issues, and some of my kids on the high end of the autism spectrum, it's truly a lifeline where their ability to communicate electronically puts them on a more level playing field with their peers. We were doing a study and this is probably about 10 years ago that our practice used to be part of a research group. It was funded by National Institute of Mental Health. And so we got involved with doing some large-scale safety and side effect studies, looking at medicines that are commonly used with kids. And so we were doing this study, and we were looking at a bunch of kids who had social anxiety. And it was really fascinating. Like When we started like looking at their cell phone use and how it differed from their peers, in that Back at that time, kids would roughly send about 10 times as many texts as they would use minutes of talk time on their phone. We had kids who would come into our office. In fact, I remember like one girl who was in the study, 13,000 texts in a month and zero minutes of talk time. Mm. So that part of her social anxiety issue was that she had a very difficult time being able to 
being comfortable speaking with someone in the moment over the phone. Texting was much more comfortable. You know what's funny? I have a little story with that, actually. We did um, a colleague of mine, uh, Danielle, Dr. Danielle Parrish, and I did a study looking at the feasibility of using virtual reality uh, as a potential um, intervention for social anxiety disorder among adolescents. And when we were trying to recruit adolescents with social anxiety, you know, we had just a phone number for them to call for a long time. And it took us a while to learn like, oh, wait, we need to get like a prepaid phone so that they can text us and say that they're interested because they're not calling us and they don't want to talk on the phone. And it wasn't until we started creating that as an option that all of a sudden we started getting more participants who actually met criteria for social anxiety. So, um, so it's so exactly what you're saying. It's just, I mean, we've totally seen that as well. So yeah, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that we talk about when we go out and train churches on how to welcome folks is that people need to have a way of being able to communicate with the church electronically. Mm-hmm. And the woman, Catherine Boyle, who is our director of mental health ministry, who's developed this idea of someone who would be a mental health liaison, and that this is the person who is on the receiving end of the emails and the texts. And it would be their job, for example, if somebody wants to, you know, attend church, but is struggling to be able to deal with that or dealing with being part of a small group or participating in activity to be able to run interference for that person and make sure that there are supports in place for them being able to do what they need to do. Because you're right. Like if, if you're asking people to volunteer for a particular activity, and if the only way they can do that is by picking up the phone and calling, you're excluding an entire group of people by doing that. Yeah. Yep, you're right. Well, as we're talking about children's mental health, and I know we, we've gone in a couple of different directions, but are there some uh, broad tips or maybe resources that you would point to in terms of how we make sure that we're taking care of our, our children's mental health better, right? Because we can't necessarily dismantle the whole educational system uh, in, in one go, but are there ways that we can increase resilience or decrease uh, the potential for problems or things like that? Well, I think that if you have a kid who's struggling, it's really important for folks to seek out the appropriate professional help. And a good place to start is by inter, you know, interacting or approaching your child's primary care physician or pediatrician, that they're oftentimes folks who are equipped to be able to get folks pointed in the right direction. One of the things that I get really frustrated with as someone in the mental health profession is that to a significant degree, a lot of the practices of the insurance industry end up driving a lot of sloppy care. <laughs> so that we, uh, we, yeah, we can have a whole episode on uh, the insurance industry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, one thing that's hard for a lot of families is that, for example, we don't take any insurance in our practice. And it's not that, you know, it's not for like financial reasons, much to the surprise of my residents and fellows, I actually make less than people do who do take insurance. 
But the issue is, is that like when we have a kid coming into our office, like a typical new evaluation will take us, will take me at least three hours. And so that as part of like this kind of evaluation, when you're looking for, when you're looking for help for your kid, a couple of things that you should look for is that if you're going to take them to somebody, they need to be somebody who does enough work with kids that they have an understanding of what's developmentally normal versus what's not. And that the second piece is that they be able to take enough time to be able to understand the nature of the problem. Yeah, that's mm, good. Yeah. I mean, I can't, and, and one of the things I work on is that for the last couple of years, I've been working under a grant from one of our local mental health boards and a community foundation to redesign the system through which kids get access to psychiatric care. We went through a big thing here in Ohio where Medicaid has changed the way that they be able that they pay for a lot of this care. And I have to tell people that I designed a system that I would not myself be able to work in because of the time pressures to be able to do things so quickly. So make sure you take your kid to somebody who's going to be taking the time to understand what's going on. And I think that as as a child psychiatrist, the first expectation oftentimes when people are coming to see somebody like me is, oh, that they're here to like prescribe or, you know, that you're here for medicine. The most important thing that I think that someone with my qualifications brings to the table is that my job is to figure out the why from a biopsychosocial standpoint Mm. that leads you to the what. Mm -hmm. So that if I can, you know, if I can give you a coherent explanation for why your child is struggling academically in school or why they're having the difficulties that they're having with their peers or why they become so distressed that they start cutting on themselves with a knife from the kitchen or talking about wanting to end their life. Understanding the why leads you logically to the what. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You're, you're starting, you're reminding me of some of Simon Sinek's work, which I know we've talked a little bit before on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with his stuff, but, um, but you know he wrote a book called Start with Why and um and it is really important to start with that and i think when you had mentioned before you know looking at that um the individual from a biopsychosocial standpoint um i think i i would assume you also mean the spiritual side too so holistically from a biopsychosocial spiritual standpoint, you know, but getting to that why is critical. That's so important. And I think that's good that you are asking about that. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, I know that, you know, doing the work that you do and being engaged in these many different areas in which you're engaged in to write a book in the way that you have and to continue to be an advocate and a mental health care provider and speaker and blogger, you know, on these different topics certainly takes a tremendous amount of effort, but there's a deep passion behind that. And you've talked about that passion at the beginning of the first episode. But one of the things we, I personally, I'm always really curious about with many of our guests is, you know, what is your, your long-term hope for this work that you do in the many ways that you're serving those around you? When you talk about long-term hope, one, one of the neat things about 
the area of ministry that we're involved with is that there's this entire disability ministry movement that's become very collaborative that when you look at when you look at some areas of ministry it there's a lot of competition people want to develop their platform folks are looking to be in a situation where they can have a lot of influence and god has just been raising up lots and lots of different people in different areas of the country and increasingly internationally who are passionate about wanting to see kids and families impacted by disability included into the church. Mm. And it's a really neat thing to be able to see the way that different folks are using their gifts and talents, you know, not out of selfish ambition, but for the desire to see folks come to know Jesus and to see the church welcome folks who were given gifts and talents by Jesus that were intended Mm. for the rest of the body. So when you talk about sort of a long-term hope, I think it would be really cool if we were part of a disability ministry movement that led to a million more people being in heaven someday and coming to know Jesus because of some of the stuff that we had an opportunity to work on. Eternity is a long time. I would like to have lots of friends. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's awesome. Hey, if you want to connect with Stephen, you can find him on Twitter at Dr. Gersovich. Online, you can find his blog and his writing at church4everychild.org, or you can connect with Key Ministry all over the place. We'll put all those links in the show notes. You can also buy Mental Health in the Church on Amazon or wherever you get your books. You can connect with Holly on Twitter at Holly Oxhandler or at hollyoxhandler.com. You can connect with me on any social media at Robert Vore or at robert-vore.com. Stephen, thank you so much for taking some time and being here with yeah. us today for both these episodes. Yeah. Uh, closing words for our listeners. Well, I just appreciate the opportunity that you guys have given me to be able to, to share and make use of your platform to get the word out. I would encourage folks, if they go to our website, keyministry.org, and if they're interested in this idea of mental health inclusion, we have lots and lots of free resources there if someone happens to be serving on staff at a church. So that we have an entire video training library of like short 10-minute long videos for people on a church who are interested in developing a mental health inclusion strategy. We have an entire page of the website that features examples of sermons and teaching of different pastors talking about mental illness, including a whole series that Rick Warren preached after his son Matthew committed suicide. Mm. Um, We have, and we will be adding you guys to this list very shortly, but we we have an entire list of social media resources for churches of reputable folks within the Christian community where churches can put this information out so that other people can share it with their friends in their local community to help address some of the perceptions as to whether or not people are going to be welcome at church if their family is impacted by a mental health condition. So that there are lots and lots of resources there. There are tools to download. There are videos. And so that I would encourage anyone who wants to learn more about that piece to go to keyministry.org and take advantage of all the free resources we put there for them. 
Yeah, mm, for sure. That's fantastic. Thank you for pulling those resources together yeah. um, and offering them in that way to folks. That's wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Um, yeah. It was a pleasure to get to chat with you and learn more about you. And you are welcome back anytime. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thanks for getting the word out during Children's Mental Health Week and National Mental Health Month. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.